if you're keeping track of what day of the week things fall on from time to time, you may remember that we began the year together in here as well. Do you remember the January 1st fell on a Sunday? This is one of those unique situations where 2023 is a year with 53 Sundays. That does not happen often. But this is our 53rd Sunday. You've already made it through 52. Now we're in our 53rd. And in the last one of 2023. So we began January 1st together. And I think it's wonderful in the providence of the Lord that we're going to end on December 31st together. And we will have come full circle in this year with the corporate worship framing the days and months in between. We are in this study of 1 Timothy that we began a few weeks ago. And in verse 17, we get to a climax of what Paul has been moved in remembering. It's going to be helpful to think about last week's passage and this week's passage back to back. In verses 15 and 16 that we noticed last week, he declared a statement that everyone should believe to fully accept. And it was this statement. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He personalized it. He said, I'm the foremost. And then he rejoiced in verse 16 that he received mercy so that God's patience in Paul would be an example to those who will believe. That no one would look at their lives and say, oh, but I'm such a sinner. And Paul would say, but Christ saved me. He can save you. And so Paul is holding himself forward as an example of the sovereign mercy of God and rejoicing in it. Now, as Paul is thinking about his testimony, as he is remembering what a wretch he was apart from Christ, you know what this does to him is it moves him to worship. What verse 17 is, is his expression of praise having been moved by remembering mercy. Paul's rejoicing over the mercy of God shown to him. He says in verse 14, That grace overflowed for him. What kind of person was he? Well, in verse 13, he was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. Paul doesn't look back at his life and say, I think I was doing pretty well. I was all right. Instead, he says, look, if we're honest about it and we just pull the deeds of darkness into the light, I was an opponent of Jesus. That's who I was. And as an opponent of Jesus, I didn't deserve grace. God showed me mercy. It was not merited. Mercy merited is not mercy. Paul, being an enemy of the cross, has now experienced the mercy of God and is testifying that this is the mission of the incarnation. He said in verse 15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And he's like, hello, that's me. I'm one of those sinners. Like he came into the world to save them. And you know what he did? He saved me. The notion about Christ coming into the world has a nearness to it. Don't you feel that? Christ came into the world to save sinners. It's like He drew close to us. Here we were alienated in our sin and our transgression. And and He came for us with rescuing mercy. So this notion of coming into the world in verse 16, 15 and 16 is the notion of God drawing near to us in Christ. What I love about the verse this morning is that right next to the nearness of Christ coming into the world with the Incarnation is a verse about the transcendence of God. His majesty. His greatness. I love that God drawing near to us did not undo His greatness. It did not undermine His majesty. It did not cancel out His transcendence. 
It's good for us to look back to back here at how the mercy of God draws near to sinners. And then Paul uses lofty language to fill our imaginations with the unsurpassed worth of God. His incomparable greatness. He's like one of the prophets. Such as Isaiah. Isaiah 40. God says through this prophet. To whom then will you compare me? That I should be like him. Lift up your eyes and see who created these. And he's gesturing the reader's mind to the stars. God says, who created these? He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might. And because he is strong in power, not one is missing. It is good for us to think about the nearness of God and the transcendence of God. We need both in our minds. We rejoice at his compassion and his mercy, and we remember that that did not make him an equal with us. He is great and high and lifted up. We have been made. That's a huge difference, isn't it? We are not self-sustaining. We're vulnerable and mortal. We're susceptible to all manner of worldly afflictions and pains and sorrows. We change, we grow, we age. You're older now than when this year began. Do you feel it? <laughs> and so here we are at the end of the year and we're remembering, all right, once more, God has proven to us we are not him. We are not God. These are the kinds of things we need to remember and pull together as evidence that we're not God. And one thing that stands out about God is his worthiness to be praised. Worthy to be praised because of who he is and what he's done. If you look at verses 15 and 16, God showed mercy to Paul. That was something God did. And Paul's going to praise the Lord for that. As he describes God in verse 17, he's going to describe certain things about God who he is. Praising God for what he's done. Praising God for who he is. These are the subjects of the praise of God on the lips of the psalmists and the New Testament authors. They, they think about what God has done and it moves them to worship. And they think about who God is, even if he hasn't done a particular thing, prompting praise at the moment. They can think on his character. And here, in verse 17, Paul is going to praise God for who he is after being moved by what he's done. And when he mentions God in verse 17, he says four things about God. That's not an exhaustive list. This letter would have been a lot longer. So he's, he's giving you in this, in this short verse, four things about God that prompt his praise of God. We say all kinds of things about God that are true because of the fullness of the canonical revelation from Genesis to the book of Revelation. But in these four truths, we see why Paul has been transported, if you will, in his soul toward uh, worship. After remembering the mercy of God. And this is key for us. Thinking about God should produce worship of God. A.W. Tozer once said that what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. What comes into your mind when you think about God. That that's not some kind of dull subject. It's not something that's like, eh, that's the side stuff. I've got a lot of important things that I'm building my life around. That would actually suggest spiritual unhealth to think about God and think not much of Him. 
But to think about God in light of the Scripture's presentation of God and who He is, it fills Paul and ought to fill the believer with worship. And it ought to fill the wicked with dread that they've defied such a worthy God. Paul has been a blasphemer, persecutor, and an insolent opponent, and God has showed him mercy. So he's going to praise God for who God is. Now what he writes is something called a doxology. Now when we hear the word doxology, we might think of the famous lyrics of the hymn known as the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Him Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. We know that, and rightly so, as a doxology. It's a very carefully crafted statement of praise to the triune God. The word doxology is not limited to the name of that hymn. The reason those lyrics are called the doxology is because of what a doxology is. The word comes from doxa, a Greek word meaning glory or renown. A doxology is a statement of doxa. It's a statement of God's renown. It's a proclamation of His worth. So a doxology declares that praise or glory belong to God. That's what a doxology is. It's a declaration of His renown or His worth. It is drawing attention to the the fact that God ought to be praised. And that God who exists as Father, Son, and Spirit is to be exalted in the hearts and words of His image bearers. Now Paul's letters contain some doxologies. They're not all over the place. They do occur occasionally. Uniquely is that here in 1 Timothy, a doxology is near the beginning of the letter. Here we are still in chapter 1. And in chapter 1, verse 17, this doxological statement is given. Near the end of 1 Timothy is another doxology. And so near the beginning of this letter and near the end of this letter, Paul's going to take a moment to just praise, the God, praise God with his pen. In a way, then... The main ideas throughout Paul's letter are framed here in 1 Timothy with his heart of worship unto God that he makes clear in the text. People who have studied doxologies in the New Testament have been able to identify some typical elements that are present. And I'm going to identify four of them here. And all four of them are actually present in this text. These are not the four things true of God. This is a different set of four. We'll get to the four things about God in just a moment. The four characteristics of doxologies tend to be a clear object of praise. That's identified here in the text. This is to God. He's the only God, the King of the ages. We're identifying God, the object of praise. Then some kind of expression of praise. The object of praise, the expression of praise, sounds like glory and honor be to Him. That's a declaration of praise expressed. Some kind of indication of time, thirdly. And the indication of time tends to sound something like glory and honor be to him forever and ever. We're we're not even going to be more specific than that. It's not like, yeah, for a few months, for a few years, let's just say from here into eternity. Some kind of indication of time. And then fourthly, a response. Some kind of confirming response, which sounds most simply like amen. In each of these New Testament doxologies, there are Elements like these four are present, and occasionally all four are present here in verse 17. The object of praise is God. Glory and honor should be to God, the expression of praise. For how long? The time indicator is forever and ever. And the response he gives at the end of the verse is amen. 
So as Paul reflects on God's mercy, he's moved by it. He's moved to worship. And what's interesting is he thought he should write this out in verse 17. You might be moved to worship at some place in your car, in your home, or at church, or in your office, wherever you might be, thinking about something of God, who He is and what He has done, and been moved to praise Him. You might not have taken the formalities to write that thing down or to send that information to someone. There might be the case that much private praise is between one's own soul and communion with God. Interesting here is that Paul stops the, the language about his testimony and then writes out in verse 17 this doxology. He believed this doxology needed to go into the letter. He didn't lean back in his chair and say, oh, I'm just going to enjoy just thinking for a moment at the mercy of God. I'll get back to writing in a minute. He's like, I'm just going to go ahead and put this in. I'm going to put the doxology in the letter. And here's what's helpful about that. Two reasons. Number one, Timothy is invited to rejoice in the words of this doxology with Paul. Because Paul's an example of the mercy and patience of God upon sinners. And then Paul's praise becomes also a kind of example for the right response to the mercy of God. In other words, God has moved upon Paul with mercy, and Paul praises God. And as sinners come to know Christ, Paul's response ought to be theirs. So that Timothy is invited to rejoice with Paul. And then secondly, the readers of the letter as a whole. Beyond Timothy, here we are, generations 2,000 years removed... From the time in Ephesus, when Paul's letter arrived to Timothy, and we're reading these words. So the value of Paul not just leaning back in his chair and then get back to business at hand, is he makes sure that we know the doxology is part of the business at hand. That this is praise unto God, glory be to God, forever and ever, amen. And Paul wants it in the letter, he wants Timothy to echo it, and he wants the church to rejoice in it. Four things true about God. In Paul's words. Number one. He is the king of the ages. The first thing he says. Is to the king of the ages. In talking about God. He opens with this statement. Of a royal assertion. That's what you think about. When you think of king. Think about someone with a scepter or a crown. You think about a throne. You think about authority. Something regal. And something powerful. You think about people under a king. A king is someone who has people or citizens in the kingdom, his realm. You think about people over whom the king has authority. A realm over which the king rules. Here, king of the ages is a declaration that God is king. Now, Paul lived in a time in the first century Roman Empire where the term king could be heard from time to time. There were certainly puppet kings of Rome that were not the emperor. Someone like King Herod, uh, or even governing authorities like Pontius Pilate in the first century, who had authority under the Caesar. The Caesar, when Paul is writing these words, is named Nero. And Nero will be the, the emperor under which Paul will be martyred after the events of 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus. So 1 Timothy, written in the early 60s, is written not many years before Paul's own death under an earthly king. But you know what you can't ever save an earthly king? That they're a king of the ages. They're just king for a while. They're so temporary. 
Whatever authority they've been able to acquire, whatever power they've been able to wield, it does not last. They come and they go. Nero died in 68 A.D. And many others preceding him and following him have had to face the reality that they are no king of the ages. You could not label them that with any straight face other than pure delusion to think that you would have some kind of reign without end. And you see, of the ages means exactly that. Without end. Age upon age upon age. It has the ring of eternality. And some, some interpreters then have looked at this king of the ages as a phrase that speaks about God as the eternal king. And I think that's right. I think that's right. There's not a partitioning of these ages out where there's just a section of ages. It's meant to be general and broad in order to envelop all of human history. Of all the ages, who is sovereign over them? Only God. No earthly king, no earthly ruler. God rules in the world He has made. This is good news to leave 2023 remembering. That God rules in the world He has made. He possesses unchanging authority. And in this sense, He has rightly declared the King. He is the King of the ages. The Old Testament teaches this in Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 10, verse 10, But the Lord is the true God. He's the living God and the everlasting King, Jeremiah 10, 10 says. In the book of Psalms, the psalmist says in Psalm 10, verse 16, The Lord is King forever and ever. This is to denote God's sovereignty. And He is sovereignty. He is sovereign. He is sovereignty. He is sovereign over all times. And He is sovereign over all places and all generations and all eras of human history. There is never a time that we will read about past or present or future over which God does not reign as King. And Paul believes God is therefore worthy to be praised. For to whom could you ever give this title except to God rightly? This doxology's proclamation in this first truth is that God reigns supreme. Secondly, He is immortal. To the King of the ages, and then secondly, immortal. This description, immortal, means that God cannot die. Therefore, we are looking at a second truth here that is only applicable to God and not to His creatures in a fallen world with mortal bodies corrupted by sin and ultimately by death. Immortal. If God is immortal, this is not something He had to acquire at some point. There are strange myths of Roman and Greek gods where gods are born and they die and some gods come into being and then last eternally. That is not the kind of God the Scripture proclaims. The scripture proclaims that God is himself immortal and the essence of life itself, the divine essence, is of maximum vitality. In other words, God cannot be more alive than he is. And he will never be less alive than he is. He is maximal life. His very essence is life. He is immortal. We receive our life. We are derived. We are created. But there is an uncreated one. There is an unmade maker. And the unmade maker and the uncreated creator receives his life from no one outside himself. He is the self-existent and inexhaustible 
inexhaustible reservoir and resource of life for creation. Decay will never be something that happens to God. We're speaking here about a truth regarding His divine nature. That the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit dwell as one God, and truly divine, and therefore immortal. It would be worth considering, given the season we were going through in recent weeks. Well, what do we say about Jesus the Son? Maybe you've thought here, how does the incarnation play into this here in verse 17? We're declaring that God is immortal. Well, we're talking about the truths of God according to His divine nature. In the incarnation, the Son of God takes to Himself a human nature. And that human nature was mortal. So verse 17 is not a statement about the incarnation. Verse 17 is a statement about the divine and unchanging nature of God. The incarnation is when the Son of God, not losing His deity, takes also to Himself a human nature, a human nature that is mortal, a human nature that could suffer and die. Plot twist. He rises from the dead with bodily immortality. Meaning that though He was born in a body that would die, He raises from the dead in a body that shall never die. In other words, He is the first fruits of the resurrection of the dead. That in His humanity, we have the same hope according to 1 Corinthians 15, that we too shall put on imperishable. We're not that way right now. We shall put on immortality. We don't feel immortal right now, but the resurrection of the dead is the first fruits of the hope that is to come for us that we have by faith now. So the incarnation is not what verse 17 is speaking to. The incarnation must be something understood rightly from other texts, but Christ takes to himself a mortal human nature and then rises from the dead in immortality. This one who reigns immortal, this God of life who is life, who cannot die according to his divine nature, he alone with his eternal reign and self-sustaining life can give life. It's not going to come from anywhere else. He makes creation. He sustains and fills all that he has made. He makes us in his image. He numbers our days, and in the palm of His hand, He holds all of our breath. We are made. We are vulnerable. God alone, who is immortal, can give life. And here's what we learn from the Gospel of John. The language eternal life is associated with the work and mission of Jesus for sinners. He has come that we might have everlasting life. Where are we going to find that? In the one who is life everlasting. In other words, it's going to come from the one that can be rightly called immortal. This is the one who reigns and with eternal life can now give life eternal to others. This third truth, we see that he is the king of the ages. He is immortal. He is thirdly invisible. Invisible. God is the maker of all things that have been made, and we're used to detecting things with our five senses. God is the creator of all things that we can see, and even things that we can't see. 
But we're used to understanding and perceiving and interacting with our senses. And God is not a thing that is sensed with five senses. There's not a a place or a shape or a, a form that God takes because God is not like the things we're used to. And this can trouble people from time to time. They say, well, you know, I I wish I could see God. Because they're used to seeing with their five senses the things that are made. But you see, God is an unmade maker. And the uncreated creator. And God is not a thing to be perceived in creation like other created things we see. God is the invisible God. He is the unseen one. The divine nature, in other words, is not material. So for you to demand, I want to touch and to see, you are wanting God to be something other than He is. You're expecting with that urgency and that desire for God to be something that is material, which is the very thing He cannot be. He is the invisible God. Ah, but the incarnation. Let's talk about this again. Listen to Colossians 1.15 about Jesus. He is the image of Of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. Colossians 1 is wonderful. A statement about the incarnation. The one who was the unseen God. The son of God takes to himself. A truly human nature. A truly human nature. Perceptible to the senses. A nature that according to the disciples. Own recognition and eyes and ears and hands. They could see and hear and touch. Oh the glory of the incarnation. Verse 17 is not about the incarnation. It's a statement about the divine nature of God. His essence as God. His father, son and spirit. But we have to ponder here. How the incarnation relates to this. According to the incarnation. The true humanity of Jesus which does not deny his deity, his true humanity, visible to the disciples, visible to religious leaders and crowds, visible to Roman soldiers and crucifiers, a genuine humanity. One of the implications, I think, about this third truth that God is invisible is it helps us to recall why idolatry in the Old Testament was forbidden. So in the Old Testament peoples and cultures in the ancient Near East, the Israelites were told not to imitate their worship because their gods had shape and form and appearances that they would seek to mirror in craftsmanship of gold and wooden and silver objects. But they're told in Exodus not to craft an image, not to have any other gods before him, but in the second commandment, not to craft an image to worship. Because trying to craft something and to say that is God is to say that God must have sort of, some sort of shape or form or some kind of material substance that you could imitate. And it would therefore be saying something about God that's not true. So idolatry is a lie about God. He is the invisible God. And therefore trying to have creatures make something to represent God is a fool's errand and expressly forbidden in the Old and New Testaments. Now it didn't stop pagans from trying. And even Israelites from time to time. As you read the Old Testament you recognize how pervasive idolatry was. Now when Paul writes this to Timothy and Timothy receives this letter in Ephesus. I told you that Ephesus was a quarter million people populated area. Huge city. 
And with a quarter of a million people, the idolatry would be off the charts in terms of the the customs and the religious worship. And most famous in Ephesus was a particular temple dedicated to the goddess Artemis. This temple of Artemis was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. In other words, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world was an abomination unto God. This This was an impressive place, a beautiful place, and entirely blasphemous. Tell you about this place. It's 425 feet long. Now, a football field is 300 feet long. So we're, we're talking about approaching a football and a half long, 220 feet wide, and 127 columns of white marble, 60 feet high per column. It's 127 columns going all the way around. The recreations of this by archaeologists, as they have sought to, to say, here is, based on these... Uh, measurements, what this would have looked like. It is, it is a wonder to the eye, and indeed a wonder in the ancient world. It took nearly two centuries to build. This thing was so massive, and yet completely futile as a place of idolatrous worship. Because in this temple was a statue, an enormous statue of Artemis herself. God is the invisible God. And even in Ephesus, it was a relevant thing to remember. Because not everyone in Ephesus had minds tuned to right worship. And they needed to remember that God alone is the king of the ages. He is the immortal God. He is invisible. And fourthly, he's the only God. He's the only God. Paul says this at the end of Romans 16. And when he says this in his letters here and in Romans, he's saying what the Old Testament says. Paul believes what earlier scripture teaches about God. This is not new. They didn't, oh, you know, we came to find out in the first century that there's only one God. No, in the Old Testament, it was long declared. In Exodus 20, verse 3, the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. King Hezekiah in 2 Kings 19 says these words. O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. Sounds like some of the things in the doxology of 1 Timothy 1.17. Declaring that God is the king, and declaring that he is the only king. So here he is, God alone. Isaiah, in Isaiah 37.20. So now, O Lord our God, save us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. That you alone. See, one of the, the indictments against sinners in a fallen world is that idolatry is false worship. So that there is a worship of what isn't God. There is an indictment against paganism in these words. If God is invisible, if God alone is immortal, if God is the only God, then Yahweh is not one of many gods. He is the only living God among the false deities elsewhere worshipped. He is the only God. And what that means is the only true and living. And we know that's the right implication, to inference to draw here, because when we... When we look at the the myths and customs of Romans and Greeks and other ancient or Eastern peoples, they believe that there were all sorts of gods who had all kinds of jurisdiction over here and jurisdiction over here and who came to be born and who procreated and who died. And the God of the Bible is not like these gods. 
He possesses immortality. He is the only God. He's king of all the ages, everywhere, having sovereign jurisdiction wherever there is a created thing. Because he has made it. Being the only God, he is therefore worthy of right worship. And the false deities and idols of the age, both present and past, are unworthy. What Paul has in mind here then is declaring what is true uniquely of God. God is the king of the ages. He is immortal. He is invisible. And he is the only God. And that means he should be praised and worshipped for all honor and glory to be his. Having looked at those four descriptions about God, let's look together at what God deserves. After those four descriptions of God, the last part of the verse is about what God deserves. Honor and glory forever and ever. When you bring honor to someone, you are not giving them worth, but recognizing or discerning. It's an acknowledgement. That's especially at least, and I'm not saying it doesn't esteem and encourage somebody's heart. What I'm saying is, we want to try to reason carefully here, that when we worship God, we are not giving Him worth. To worship God, or to declare that honor and glory be unto God, it is to recognize among ourselves who He is. That honor, esteem, belong to God. Because of what we rightly see of God, and who He has revealed Himself to be. One of the ways we can think about worship is the soul's glad agreement with what God has said of himself. We've come in our souls to agree, and gladly so, that God is who has revealed himself to be. And that worship is our souls coming into glad alignment with the truth of God himself. And therefore saying with Paul, honor belongs to God. Public recognition and praise. He ought to be high and lifted up. We're not giving him worth. We're not adding to God. We are acknowledging and exalting the one with our words who himself is the immortal, invisible God of life. Honor and glory function basically as synonyms here. We don't want to press the distinction between them too hard. To give honor and glory is together with this pair of words to offer praise and acknowledgement. That's what Paul says is the tragedy among image bearers in Romans chapter 1. Listen to this. Romans 1.23. In the folly of man we have, he says, exchanged the glory of the immortal God. For images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So Paul says that one of the effects of sin in our hearts and minds is that we are disoriented in in our worship. That our affections and that our minds do not seek to live for the glory of God as we ought to apart from the grace of Christ. Thankfully, because of the mercy of God, what is dead within us is awakened by the power of God so that we are brought from darkness to light and from death to life so that we can see rightly that God ought to be praised and honored and that we should live a life to glorify God and to honor God, to live that we might declare his worth. But this worth, this honor and glory is something to acknowledge forever and ever. So before we came along, God was worthy. After we are gone, he is worthy. 
He will be worthy forever and ever and ever. No one will rightly ever say enough is enough. You can't say that of this kind of thing. Because there is an inexhaustibility to it. This confirmation with the word amen is not just Paul closing off this doxology. Remember, Timothy and every reader after Timothy of this letter is invited to echo what he says. So that if God is this king of the ages, immortal, invisible, and the only God to whom belong honor and glory forever and ever. And Paul says, amen. And Timothy would be thinking, amen. Amen indeed. There is an indeedness here that is emphasized. It is a yes. It is a confirmation. A so be it. The soul's glad affirmation with the word amen. Amen is not a throwaway word. Now, as Christians, we use it all the time. We might use it even in more serious ways or less serious ways in certain circumstances without thinking through what we are meaning when we say it. And the word amen is a statement of glad affirmation. Amen. That's right. May it be. Let it be, Lord. And when he says here that to God alone, to this God who reigns over all the ages as king and who has immortality and invisibility, this God, the one who has saved Paul by mercy, by sending Jesus into the world to save sinners, this God is worthy of unending praise. There is never enough. And Timothy says, Amen. When Jonathan Edwards was 17 years old, he was reading this text. Here he is, a teenager, thinking about the state of his soul and wrestling with many things. I want you to listen to a testimonial from him. In 1721, he wrote these words. In 1721, at 17 years old, he says, I was reading 1 Timothy 1.17, and here's what happened. As I read the words, there came into my soul... A sense of the glory of the divine being, a new sense, quite different from anything I'd ever experienced before. Never any words of scripture seemed to me as these words did. I thought with myself how excellent a being that was. And how happy I should be if I might enjoy that God. I kept saying and as it were singing over these words of scripture to myself. And I went to pray to God that I might enjoy Him. And I prayed in a manner quite different from what I used to with a new sort of affection. An inward sweet sense of these things at times came into my heart. And my soul was led away into pleasant views and contemplations of them. And my mind was greatly engaged to spend my time in reading and meditating on Christ. And on the beauty and excellency of his person. And the lovely way of salvation by free grace in him. Now that's a long testimonial from Edwards. But Edwards is saying something happened in me as I studied and thought about what verse 17 meant. What it said of God. What it exalted of him. What Edwards experienced is what we need and were made for. To have a heart. To have a soul. That in coming to contemplate the truth of God, that we are moved to new affections and worship and joy in Him. Joy in God. Not joy in this world will sustain us. 
trying to find the right circumstances and the right thing to come along and the right thing that you're pursuing and to think to yourself, oh, if I could only, and then I would be happy. And if, what if 1 Timothy 1.17 is the way? What if 1 Timothy 1.17 for our hearts is that window into truth where our joy and our pleasures and our affections in God are in that waiting mode with all the allurements of the world and we need to see and rejoice in this truth and to enter into a joy in God for who God is and what He's done in mercy. And as this reflection said, That we would spend our time reading and meditating on Christ, on the beauty and excellency of His person. I mean, the same thing that we need then for the end of one year is the same thing we're going to need for a new day and a new year. Same glorious Christ. Lifted up and exalted. Full of mercy and compassion. Near us and transcendent. King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the Son of God, incarnate and risen to put on imperishable resurrection life. This is our hope. This is our hope. Paul ends this little statement to Timothy here with a doxology. So we came into 2023, January 1st, on the Lord's Day, on the Lord's Day, looking to Christ, praising the Lord, and we will end 2023 the same way. On the Lord's Day, On December 31st, looking to Christ and praising Him for His worth. Let's pray.